You are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is David Guzik, and I'm so pleased that you could join us here on a Thursday afternoon for a question and answer time that I host on our YouTube channel. Generally, how we work it is I begin with a lead question uh, that gets sent in by email or some other way, and I'll spend 15, maybe even 20 minutes discussing that lead question. We're going to shorten things up quite a bit today uh, to give a lot more time for your questions that you submit in on the live chat. If we've never been introduced before, I'm a pastor. I am a Bible teacher. Uh, I have a written commentary on the entire Bible, uh, Genesis to Revelation, every chapter of the Bible. Uh, It's my life's work, and it's available absolutely free at EnduringWord.com. It's also available, again, absolutely free, at blueletterbible.com, blb.org is the website for that, which is a marvelous Bible resource site. We have a very active work translating that Bible commentary into a lot of other languages, and that's something we are very pleased to do, uh, because as much as people might appreciate good Bible resources in English— We feel there's an even greater need in other languages. And I'm well aware that certainly not everybody finds my Bible commentary helpful or useful. You know, it's a matter of personal taste and personal choice. I'm just happy that there's at least a few people out there that find the work that I do in explaining the Bible through the online commentary and the verse-by-verse work helpful in any way. So we're going to go to the questions that have come in here on the live chat. Uh, I'm going to take those questions from our moderator, Devin, as he sends them to me. But I do want to begin with a quick question that was brought in uh, from our friends at TWR360. TWR360 is the Trans World Radio online presence. And Trans World Radio is a marvelous ministry that for decades and decades has been doing pioneering work, reaching the globe in many different languages through the medium of shortwave radio. And of course, now they do a substantial amount of their ministry also online through a website and through an app. We're very pleased that this YouTube video is being featured on the TWR360 website I want to welcome all our TWR360 viewers and listeners. You're welcome here, and I'm glad that you've been able to make it. We did have a question come in from our TWR360 friends from Sabina. She's part of the translation team that's doing a marvelous work on translating my Bible commentary into German. Uh, So, Sabina, here's the question. She says, I have a question about Daniel chapter 3, verses 16 through 18. The Schlachter translation, that's a well-known German translation that we're sort of basing the commentary on. The Schlachter translation says, if it be so, referring to Nebuchadnezzar's command to throw the three men into the furnace, but then follows, and even if it shall not be so, which is interpreted in some Bible commentaries, my own included, as referring to the three possibly not being thrown into the furnace at all. Okay, well, no, I take that back. That's not my understanding. 
This is different from other Bible translations where the, and even if it not be so, refers to the three possibly not surviving, which makes a difference in the total meaning. Well, Sabina, thank you for that question. And I would just say, let's take a look at that text together here. We're talking about Daniel chapter uh, 3, beginning here at verse 16, where we see, uh, it says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If that is the case, that our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. So they are confident, in verses 16 and 17, about the deliverance that God would give. Now, verse 18, But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you will set up. And Sabina's question here has to do with those words, but if it is not, uh, what she's kind of wondering there is if it relates to, and apparently some commentaries have it differently, if those words, but if it is not, if that refers to the, if God doesn't deliver us from the fiery furnace, or if those words uh, relate to the idea, if God, uh, if Nebuchadnezzar spares us from the fiery furnace. Sabina, I'm going to give you a very straightforward answer. I, I am on the side of thinking that, to me, it makes the most sense in the context to say, if we are confident God will deliver us, but even if God does not deliver us, we will not bow down to you. In other words, Nebuchadnezzar, your threat of violence against us is worth nothing. It's not going to sway us one way or the other. That's the way I would understand this. But I will admit that it's possible to interpret this, that the idea here is, but Nebuchadnezzar, even if you do not put us into the fire, even if you at this last moment show mercy to us, still we will not bow down before your gods or before you. I think that the context gives more weight to the first position that the if it does not happen, referring to if God does not deliver us, to me, that makes the most sense given the context. But, you know, there are passages like this that deal with relatively minor things that the meaning isn't substantially changed one way or the other. So, Sabina, I, I would just say that it's a little difficult to give a final determination on what that would be. But I would say that I would be fairly confident here that it is referring to if God does not deliver us. So that's the way I would understand it, and that's the way I relate it there in my very own commentary. So Sabina, I hope that is helpful for you. And again, I do want to say welcome to our TWR360 viewers. Let me continue on now with some of the questions that have come in on the live chat. Jose asks this question. According to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 27 and 34, What's the unworthy manner to participate of the Lord's Supper? What are the consequences of not doing it right? What's the proper way? Uh, verse 27 says this, Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drink this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Uh, so he goes on to, to say this. Now, Jose, I think that's a good question. In context, if you go 
earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and I believe even if you were to go afterwards in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, you would see that really what he's speaking about there has to do with the idea of being very selfish and self-oriented at the Lord's Supper. In the early church, they often celebrated the Lord's Supper, communion, the Lord's table, whatever you want to call it. Christians have given it different titles throughout the ages, but we all understand that we're speaking of taking the bread and the cup in remembrance and in receiving of what Jesus did on the cross. When they took it often in the early church, they would do it in the context of a common meal for the fellowship. Some people would call it a love feast, an agape feast, where they would get together, have what we might call today, at least in English, a potluck dinner, where people would just bring what they could and the food would be shared and everybody would enjoy it. So if if we take a look at this passage, I'm going to go here to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17, where it says, Now, in giving these instructions, I do not praise you, since you come together not for the better, for the worse. For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. Now go down to verse 20. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of the others, and one is hungry and another is drunk. These things should not be. So you get the idea here. Here, the idea, coming back to what Paul says, is that uh, they should consider that the common meal is a place for sharing. It's a place for uh, loving one another and caring for one another. And instead, they're not doing that. One's getting drunk. The other one is leaving hungry. As Paul says, it should not be so there at the Lord's Supper. Okay, so... How does that come back to our question here, Jose? Well, again, if we were to understand the context of the question, it would simply be telling us that they were acting in a very selfish, unloving, greedy way towards one another. And that specifically is what Paul says is their conduct that is making the Lord's Supper an unworthy—they are receiving the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. So that's the specific—I think what this is saying is that um, we need to, to love one another in the body of Christ, and when there is an obvious and severe uh, breaking of that command that we should love one another and care for one another in the body of Christ, then it can put us in a place where we receive the Lord's table in an unworthy manner. It's as if they're saying, Jesus, 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 uh, we love you and we receive the work that you did on the cross. And then they were treating their other brothers and sisters at the Lord's table in a disgraceful way. It should not be so. That is living an open and terrible contradiction there, right there at the Lord's Supper. I think that is the unworthy manner. Now, you also ask, what are the consequences? Well, again, Jose, you just look in the text. In this particular thing, it says there that uh, some of them were sick 
And there were many that slept and many sleep. In other words, the idea is that they died before due time. Most people understand this to be something of a judicial judgment. I believe that I explain this pretty clearly in my commentary on uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. So, Jose, I would recommend you take some time at EnduringWord.com. Look up my commentary there. But the most pointed way that they were receiving the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner was by their open and, and severe lack of regard, lack of love for their other brothers and sisters. This is a heavy reminder to us of the importance of love uh, in the body of Christ. We need to love each other. We, we need to not needlessly divide amongst one another but we need to be loving and caring and filled with concern one for another. Now, there may be other ways to uh, receive the Lord's table in an unloving manner, but that seems to be what is spoken about most pointedly there in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Okay, let me uh, continue on. Conception Productions asks, do you believe it is a sin to smoke recreational marijuana? All right, well, Conception, I would say this. Um, I do believe it is a sin, and I'll explain to you why. There are many people who would answer back and say, well, the Bible does seem to permit uh, the drinking of alcohol in moderation, and what is the difference between the drinking of alcohol and the uh, taking of recreational marijuana? What's the difference between the two? And I'll tell you the difference. The Bible does allow the consumption of alcohol, but it absolutely forbids drunkenness. Absolutely. Now, people want to debate, well, what does drunkenness mean? And I'll just define it this way. It is being impaired in some way. The alcohol in your system is impairing you. It's giving you a buzz. It's making you feel different than you felt before in a way that impairs you. In a way that does not sharpen your senses, but dulls them. Now, it is possible for a person to drink alcohol without becoming drunk. And it is possible for a person to drink alcohol without the goal of becoming drunk. But the consumption of recreational marijuana is in itself the goal of impairment. <laughs> That's what it's all about. Uh, if you go back on the YouTube channel, you'll find a video I did a few years ago about marijuana. And you can look that up where I explain this more fully. But I would say that that is the distinction between the two. Now, there are people who take all different, different forms of CBD oils, CBD substances, things that can be consumed without any impairment. That's a different category altogether. That's like taking an herbal supplement. But where there is impairment of the senses involved, uh, I think that that is some form of intoxication or drunkenness. And, and here's what I'm saying. 
That is the entire goal with the consumption of marijuana, uh, at least in that sense. So that is the distinction that I would make between the two. I understand that in many places in the United States and in other countries that it's legal. But look, we don't believe that just because something is legal, that it's moral. There are many things that are legal in our modern culture that are not moral. And so I believe that a believer should not recreationally consume marijuana. Now, again, the whole issue of taking it therapeutically apart from an impairment for it, that's another thing altogether. And that's, I won't put that in the same category. So that's my answer to that question there, conception. Angela asks, thoughts on love and finding a spouse? Well, Angela, that's a great question. It's something that many people ask for. Many single Christians ache over the idea of wanting to find a spouse. And I understand that. Uh, I, I would simply say this. Uh, two things I would consider. Um, first of all, recognize that your unmarried state, your celibate state, whether it is temporary and you'll be married later, or whether it's permanent and it's just not God's call for your life to be married, that celibate state is understood by the New Testament to be a gift from God. I know for many unmarried people, it feels like a curse, but God regards it as a gift. You could even say that Jesus sanctified the unmarried state because Jesus himself was celibate. The apostle Paul was not married. I think that it's likely that he was married before his conversion or early in his conversion, but that's another story altogether. So first, understand that whether your singleness, your celibacy is temporary or permanent to regard it as a gift from God, something that gives you some advantages in life and in service to the Lord. But how do you find a spouse? Instead of putting a focus on finding the right person, put more of a focus on being the right person. In other words, I think that that's the best place to start. It's also something that you have more control over than finding the right person as well. So um, just ask God to work in your life and to make you the kind of person uh, that is ready for marriage and that would be a good spouse to that person that uh, God may lead you to marry. I also recommend that it's just good to hang out in places where you would want to find somebody that you may marry, such as church, such as groups like that. And um, it, I know it's not easy, uh, but this, if it's any comfort to you, it's a challenge that many men and women face in our modern day. Let me continue on uh, asking, a, dealing with a question from Jennifer. Why is the verse, Acts chapter 8, verse 37, admit, omitted from the ESV, the NIV, and the NLT? Acts chapter 8, verse 37 says, Then Philip says, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Well, Jennifer, that's a very good question. And really what it has to do is with manuscript evidence. And I want you to know, uh, I'm not an expert on the Greek manuscripts. I certainly don't want to present myself as being an expert. 
Uh, but yet I think that at least in some way, I know how to read the people who are experts. And I think it's important that we just take a look here. And as I take a look here on my New King James Version, I can see that it notes here that um, there's certain manuscripts that omit verse 37, but it says that it's found in the Western texts, including the Latin tradition. Uh, that's this area right here that speaks about the textual tradition. And here is basically the issue, Jennifer. The issue revolves around this. There are thousands of ancient Greek manuscripts, and in general, they are divided into different families or categories. And one family of manuscripts has Acts chapter 8, verse 37. One family of manuscripts does not have Acts chapter 8, verse 37. The debate goes on, which is more likely to be what Luke actually wrote by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit when the Holy Spirit moved Luke to pen the book of Acts. And I would just simply say this, Jennifer, these are things that have to be determined on a case-by-case -case basis. I would not say that in every sense the Western manuscripts are better, nor would I say in every sense that the Eastern manuscripts, I would not say that in every sense the Alexandrian family of manuscripts is better or the Byzantine family of manuscripts. I think these are things that have to be determined on a case-by-case -case basis. But really, this is something determining according to what family of ancient Greek manuscripts that the texts come from. Now, most modern translations are built on the NU texts, the, the uh, Alexandrian family of manuscripts. It's from these that we have the oldest extent existing ancient Greek complete manuscripts. There are other people who think that there is more validity and accuracy to the Eastern or the Byzantine family of manuscripts. Therefore, um, I think it's a worthy debate, and I wouldn't write off one or the other with just a flourish. I would examine each one on an individual case-by-case -case basis. So really, that's the best way that I could answer that question there for you, Jennifer. Let me go on uh, to uh, Donald's question. Donald asks, Seth was born in the image of Adam in a sinful state, but he still had a choice, dominion, etc. Question, when God say, let us make man in our image, could in the image only mean sinless like God? No, Donald, I'm going to... Uh, uh, go with you on a different direction here. When it says that man is created in the image of God, I don't believe that that refers to man being created sinless. Again, you could go to my commentary on Genesis chapter 1, where it first speaks of man being made in the image of God. And you could look it up there. I think I, I have a fuller discussion there of what it means to be created in the image of God. I do not think that the essential idea is sinlessness because after the fall, 
we are still described as being made in God's image. So the idea of being made in the image of God is not tied to the idea of sinlessness as Adam and then Eve would have been sinless. It's tied to the idea of uh, man having uh, a mind, man having volition, that is the ability to choose, man having reason and intellect, all of things after the pattern of God. So again, I would recommend that you take a look at my commentary on Genesis chapters 1 and 2, where it speaks about the idea of man being made in the image of God. And there, I would know that I have a fuller uh, explanation of the different aspects of what it means that man is made in the image of God. But I would not include among those aspects the idea that man is sinless. And again, the reason why is because after the fall, after we have inherited sin from Adam, and after we sin ourselves, it still says that man is still made in the image of God. So I hope that's helpful for you there, Donald. Next question comes from Jordan and asks, what do you think about the Apocrypha? I heard it has some useful history in it. Uh, that's the first question. I'll deal with the first question first. Jordan, yes. The apocryphal books of the Old Testament, 1st and 2nd Maccabees, Esdras, the Wisdom of Solomon, whatever these books are, they are books that are of value. They are books that have some interesting and helpful history. Our only complaint against the Apocrypha is saying that they are not on the level of Scripture. By every indication... Jesus and the apostles of the early church, the authors of the New Testament, they did not regard those books as authoritative scripture. It was just simply not in the collection of scriptural books that they had at that time. And so while they are useful books, while they can be helpful books, we, we shouldn't tell Christians at all, you're forbidden from reading. No, not at all. Just don't regard them as being the same as Scripture. So that's the understanding we have of the Apocrypha. Your second question is this, Jordan. Do you see Moses as a failure? And then here's a third question. Can you speak more on Christian liberty? Uh, no, Jordan, I do not see Moses as a failure. Um, Moses was a glorious success. There is some tragedy in the life of Moses, mainly in that he was not able to enter into the promised land along with the children of Israel. And that is a genuine tragedy that the scriptures connect for us. So, um, yes, I believe that there is tragedy in the life of Moses but I would not say that he was a failure. He succeeded in what God had him to do. And in the beautiful way that the death of Moses is described in the closing chapter of the book of Deuteronomy, to me, that doesn't say failure. It says beautiful, glorious success. So no, I don't regard Moses as a failure. Um, as much as we would say of any of us that our imperfections 
should make us to be regarded as failures. Finally, here, uh, Jordan, you ask, can I speak more on Christian liberty? Jordan, to be honest, to give a full development of that uh, would take more time and more preparation than I'm ready to give right now. I would just simply say that I think it's worthy for us as Christians to think more about this principle of Christian liberty. In other words, that we are, in fact, free men and free women in Jesus Christ, and where the Bible is silent on particular things, either in clear command or clear principle, where the Bible is silent, we have liberty in Jesus Christ, and we should be careful about being judgmental regarding the liberty of another brother or sister in Jesus Christ. I see a lot of condemnation happening today regarding people uh, that are really matters of Christian liberty. And I think Christians should just calm down a little bit when it comes to those things. So that, that's all the answer I'm going to give to that right now, Jordan. But thank you for that uh, suggestion about talking about Christian liberty. Uh, let me go on to the next question from Burke. Hello, Pastor Guzik. Does it say anywhere in the Bible that a person must be a member of a church? Or is it okay to just attend and tithe and be part of the church, but just not be a member? Okay, Burke, let me answer the question as you have stated it and what I think you mean. I would say, now look, I understand there are Christians who have different opinions on this. <laughs> because I think this is an area that the Bible does not speak to specifically, uh, I do believe that this is an area of Christian liberty. I do believe that the Bible does not command formal church membership the way it is understood today, at least, let's say, in an American context. Now, I want to be clear. The Bible does not forbid it. This is an area of Christian liberty. And so I don't blame any pastor or any church for saying formal church membership is important to us. We are going to stress it and require it for certain ministry positions at our church. I, I don't mind that in the slightest. What I would mind is if they felt that it was um required for every church to do that, if they no longer saw this as an area of Christian liberty. Now, you'll notice I used a phrase there very carefully, formal church membership. I believe the idea of membership in God's family is very important. <laughs> but, but I believe that membership in God's family is a fact if we are born again and consciously associate ourselves with the family of God. So do you see the distinction I'm trying to make there? We are members one with another, the Bible says. And, and I think it's important for us to grab a hold of that and to just simply have rest in that truth. So we are members of the body of Christ. So I'm very big on the spiritual concept of membership. Um, I'm not as big 
on the formal requirement of membership, I think that is something left up to each individual Christian church and to each individual Christian believer. I, I, I hope that answers the question there for you, Bert. Um, let me continue on. Grant asks, Will believers' sins be remembered and judged at the judgment seat of Christ? Well, Grant, um, it does seem from Corinthians, where it speaks of the judgment seat of Christ, that Christian faithfulness and stewardship will be judged. So, uh, there is a sense, if you want to say, a lack of faithfulness, a lack of proper Christian stewardship is a sin. Therefore, in some sense, sin will be judged. But I want you to understand something that I think is very important to grab a hold of. And it's simply this. Uh, for the believer and everybody at the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema seat of Christ. This is a judgment for believers. It's not the great white throne judgment that, that determines someone's eternal destiny. The judgment seat of Christ is for those who are believers and are heaven-bound. That judgment, since it is for believers, since it is, it is not to um, reconcile sin. These are believers. These are people for whom sin has been reconciled at the cross. So, they, um, it's not to be judging sin, it's to be rewarding faithfulness. Now, you could say that there is an implicit judgment in someone not receiving a reward, but it's really not the same thing, is it? So the purpose of the judgment seat of Christ is not to judge sin. Everybody who stands at the judgment seat of Christ will have their sin already judged in the person and work of Jesus Christ and what he accomplished at the cross. However, uh, what will be judged is reward, and people will be given reward and uh, authority, I believe, in the age to come based on their faithfulness uh, in serving God at this level. Okay, let me continue on to the next question from Jane. Jane asks, can you explain how we are to be the salt in salt and light? Well, Jane, um, when Jesus used those figures speaking in the ancient world, salt had several different connotations. First of all, salt was valuable. So, God's people should be valuable in their community. Number two, salt uh, had a preserving aspect. This is one of the great uses of salt in the ancient world, where in a day before they had commercial refrigeration, salt was used to uh, preserve things, just like meats and such are salted today to keep them from rotting. It just makes them last longer. Salt was valuable. Salt was a preservative, but salt also added flavor. It made things better. Christians should be the same way in their community. They should be a value in the community. They should be a preservative in the community. In other words, they help 
slow the rate of decay and rottingness in the community. And then finally, they should add some good flavor to the community. Um, oh, I hope that helps you there, Jane. Let me go on to the next question from uh, Amoye asks, how do I make a difference between my voice, the devil, and God speaking to me? Well, uh, Amoye, that's a great question, but I think that it's a question that is oftentimes asked sincerely, but mistakenly. Amoye, here's how you can one hundred percent know that God is speaking to you. Read your Bible. This is how you know one hundred percent that God is speaking to you because it's given to you in the pages of the Bible. When we're speaking about the voice of God speaking to us or what some people regard as a prophetic word from God, ultimately, we never have the confidence in any such thing as that as we do in God's revealed word. So, sometimes you'll know it was the word of the Lord because things just work out that way. There was a time in my life where I believed that God brought to me a very clear, specific, remarkable, prophetic word. It, it really had to do with the future of myself, my family, my ministry. Well, how did I ultimately know that it was the word of the Lord? Because it worked out that way. Because things developed in just those ways. But that's something you can only tell completely by retrospect. So really, um, we shouldn't be trying to hear the voice of God uh, in our own heart, in our own mind. We shouldn't be trying to hear the voice of God by chasing around supposed prophets. If you want to try to hear the voice of God, open your Bible. Now, again, I say that as someone who believes that God can and may speak to us, but we never have the same kind of confidence in our ability to properly hear and understand such a word as we would have in the Word of God. So, Amoya, I hope that's helpful for you there. Uh, Kehech asks, Are Christians allowed to have hobbies? I'm asking this because of the verse where it says, loving God with all your mind, heart, soul, etc., and the verse which says to focus on the things which are above. Uh, Kehech, uh, I, and I hope I'm pronouncing your name correctly. Let me answer your question like this. I certainly hope that God allows Christians to have hobbies because I'm a Christian and I have hobbies. I enjoy the hobbies that I have. And it's just like anything that is a gift from God for our lives. Hobbies, just as long as anything else, should never be idols in our life. We can have things, enjoy them, without them becoming idols. Now, if you can't have a hobby without it becoming an idol, well, then you shouldn't have the hobby, just like anything in your life. But there's lots of hobbies that I enjoy working on. 
Right now I'm working on some old cars and I'm working on the engines and I'm working on the mechanics. I really enjoy doing that. Uh, I enjoy hobbies that are sort of athletic or sports minded. And so, uh, yes, I, I hope God allows us and blesses hobbies that we have. I think they're helpful. They're useful. They are part of rest and recreation. Please remember this. Rest and recreation are part of the world that God has given us. He gave us one day out of seven to rest. And we can do that and should do that unto the glory of God. So I hope that's helpful right there. Martha asks the question, does God judge nations today? And Martha, I would just simply answer, yes. Why would we think that God has stopped judging nations? Now, there is difficulty in making a statement like that. And here is the difficulty. When we say that God judges nations, it's always hard to um, take a look at any one specific event and say, I know that's the judgment of God. Uh, For example, a hurricane comes and devastates an area. Was that the judgment of God? Or is that just the fact that we live in a fallen world and part of living in that fallen world means that we can have destructive weather patterns. Um, a disease comes upon a nation or a group of people. Is that the judgment of God? Or is it just the fact that we live in a fallen world and disease and sickness can be a part of that? It can be difficult to discern if a specific crisis or tragedy is in fact the direct judgment of God But the principle remains that God has the right to judge nations and God does judge nations. Absolutely does. And this this is something that in my observation drives the secular world crazy. Uh, You know, when I listen to atheists speak from time to time, one of the things that offends atheists to no end is the idea that God has the right to judge. So they're always questioning the judgments of God. Well, God, why did God judge this? And why did God judge that? And why did God do this? And they're always questioning the judgments of God. Listen, listen. We are not in a place to question the judgments of God. God is a righteous judge and he has the right to judge nations and individuals by that matter as well. But again, the the difficulty comes in confidently saying that any one particular instance or circumstance is the judgment of God. Uh, Let me go on to Carol's question. Carol asks, how do you feel about displaying pictures of Jesus? Um, Carol Since I don't regard them as anything more than suggestions of Jesus, I don't have a problem with them. If a person was to regard such images, pictures, as being actual representations of Jesus, I think that could become problematic. It could become idolatrous. 
so I think that it's, uh, I don't have a problem with it. Now, th there are some people say, well, in the Old Testament, it says that you should make no depiction of God. And Jesus is God, so it's wrong to make a depiction of him. And again, I, I understand why people say that. I believe that the incarnation changed things. That the incarnation showed Jesus to the world. And so to speak, it gave God a face. Now, we don't pretend to know exactly what that face looked like. So we should never hold on to any particular image of Jesus with confidence. Yes, that's what he really looked like, because we just don't know. But to me, it sort of argues against the principle that every image of Jesus is absolutely wrong. To me, it's more in how that image of Jesus is regarded by the individual. Hope that helps you there, Carol. Uh, TJR asks, why did Jesus cry and why was he troubled in spirit when Lazarus died? Does God still cry? Well, that's an interesting uh, question. First of all, why did Jesus cry? We're told that Jesus wept at the tomb of Lazarus. Again, I, look, I, I don't want to answer to every question. Just look up my commentary. But if you were to look up in my commentary at John chapter 12, where Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, I think I give an explanation there of why Jesus cried. I'm happy to relate it here, but I do just want to let people know that you have questions at a time when we're not doing our live question and answer. You could just look up in the Enduring Word Bible commentary uh, that section of scripture that your question deals with, and maybe you'd find an answer. Okay, but TJR, let me get back to your question here. Jesus did not cry merely out of sorrow for the death of Lazarus. And I'll tell you why. Why I say that. It's because Jesus was about to raise Lazarus from the dead and he knew it. It wasn't, oh, I'm so sorry that Lazarus is dead. I'm going to make him alive. No, I think that the sorrow of Jesus at the tomb of Lazarus was more complicated than that. No doubt there was a strong element in it that Jesus sorrowed over the wreckage that sin and death had done to humanity. Jesus, who came from heaven and knew life eternal in a way that nobody else who ever walked this earth knew it. He could know in a way that nobody else ever knew how tragic how terrible the destruction of death was upon earth. So there's that aspect to it. I think Jesus also sorrowed at the unbelief of people. Um, um, that was a source of great sorrow for Jesus, that there were so many people... Um, unbelieving at the tomb of Lazarus. So um, I think that was another factor very much involved. Um, 
so I, I think those are reasons why Jesus wept at the uh, tomb of Lazarus. Uh, that's why he was troubled in his spirit. Now, does God still cry? I would say no. Now, the Bible does not specifically tell us that God does or doesn't cry in heaven. It doesn't say those words specifically. But I would say this, that even though there is a time for tears for the people of God on earth now, when we are in heaven, there will be no more tears. God will wipe away every tear. Well, I don't think Jesus is still weeping in heaven. Not at all. I think Jesus is uh, in his glorified Bible, where God still feels sorrow over things that happen on earth, but he does not cry. Even as believers will have every tear wiped away. Let me continue on. Uh, Martha has a question. Can you please explain forgiveness? I am asking because I struggle to balance forgiveness and setting healthy boundaries. Martha, I know that I have some more detailed teaching on this on my YouTube channel, but let me give you just a very quick summary. I believe that there is a difference between forgiveness and reconciliation. Now, there are some people who believe that those two things are really the same. And so they would say that there is no true forgiveness if there is not reconciliation. I would disagree with that. I believe that you can truly forgive somebody in your heart and in your words and still be very guarded about your relationship with them because they do not recognize their sin, at least in a full aspect. And you are not, to use an overused phrase, you are not safe around them. So it is okay to genuinely forgive someone and yet nevertheless set real boundaries in your relationship with them. So really, that's the distinction I would make. There's a difference between forgiveness and reconciliation. I believe that God commands us as believers to forgive. I don't believe that there's really any passage in the New Testament that would seek to restrict the forgiveness of Christians, but rather God intends for us to have a very open hand with the forgiveness that we would give to other people. But again, saying there's a difference between forgiveness and reconciliation. You no longer hold that person's sin against them Yet you have the wisdom to know that they still could sin against you in the same way because there hasn't been a proper repentance or restoration. And so you, uh, you're just not reconciled to the same relationship with them. That's how we would express it there in a nutshell, Martha. I hope that's helpful for you. Anthony says, uh, Have I ever heard of the Tree of Life Bible translation? What exactly is it? Anthony, I got to say, I have not heard of the Tree of Life Bible translation, so uh, maybe I can look it up sometime and see what's there. But great to have you on the program today, Anthony. Glad you could join us. Um, next question comes from Andrea. How about medication that causes impairment, antidepressants, pain medication, sleeping pills? Okay, Andrea, th that's a very good question. 
And I would put it in these terms. There is impairment that happens to a person as a side effect of taking a medication. And there are people who take drugs or medications for the purpose of the impairment. That's really the difference between the two. If a medicine is prescribed by a doctor and is proper for a person to take, and it causes impairment on some level, I regard that as a side effect and under a doctor's care, I don't think there's any sin in that. However, when a person self-medicates or takes a drug or a medication for the purpose of impairment, that's the difference. It's like drinking for the purpose of getting drunk. That's what the use recreational of marijuana is like. It's uh, using marijuana for the purpose of impairment. Now, somebody may say, well, I use marijuana for this purpose and the impairment is a side effect. Well, listen, if that is true, then that's between you and God. We understand that there could be people be lying about such a thing. But again, that's between them and God and God will deal with them on that. But that's the distinction I would make between the two. Ojo, or Aluwaise, asks, can we give away our marriage for the sake of the gospel like Paul? Well, Aluwaise, I would say no. Because very specifically, Paul speaks to this in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 7, mainly. Where Paul says, if a believer is married, that they should not seek to have the marriage ended, thinking they could serve the Lord better as a single person. No, if we're married, God has great service unto him, great purpose working in our lives through that institution of marriage. Again, Paul speaks very pointedly to this. Now, when Paul speaks about it in 1 Corinthians, he's speaking about it in terms of being married to an unbeliever, but the same principle would apply if you're married to a believer. We should not think, if we are married, that we could honor God more by not being married. That's not how God wants us to think. If it is true that Paul was married, and I believe that he was, and later we know that during the years of his apostolic ministry, he was not married, then it's either because his wife died or his wife divorced him. His wife abandoned him, perhaps because he became a believer. We don't know. Um, but if it is true that Paul was married, uh, it wasn't that he just left his wife, because later on he says, don't do that, again in 1 Corinthians. Okay, a few more questions here. Uh, Tyler says, I'm having a tough time as an ER nurse seeing the realities of people, addiction, violence, neglect, abuse. How can God love all these people? It's hard to square my faith with what I see. Tyler, um, let me say, I, I feel for you in this situation. I feel for the up-close and personal view you get 
of the fallenness and the pain of humanity, the brokenness of humanity in general. That's a hard thing to stomach. Yet, Tyler, let me just say that this is almost the universal condition of humanity. Tyler, I want you to imagine just for a moment that you could go back in time a hundred years or five hundred years. Whatever you see today in pain and suffering and loss and death and brokenness, whatever you see in that today would have been much worse in older times. We have made remarkable progress in those things. And part of that is that we have the heritage in the Western world of 2,000 years of Christianity. But Tyler, um, this is a broken, fallen world, and it is the power of Jesus and the love of Jesus that brings even some light into this broken and fallen world. I guess I just start from a more pessimistic place. Humanity is broken and fallen, and any relief or blessing in the midst of that is a precious, beautiful gift of God. And Tyler, let me say this. I am so happy that even with this weight, this burden you feel looking at the darkness and the brokenness of humanity around you, especially at your job, even in the midst of that, I'm glad God has used there. And ask God every day that you work there in the emergency room that God would enable you, at least in some small way, to be his light, his truth, his bringer of peace, of shalom, in the midst of that difficulty. Thank you for that, Tyler. Uh, Dominic asks, Are Jews sinners because they don't believe in Jesus? Well, Dominic, that's an interesting question. I could answer it a few different ways. Okay, on the one hand, I could say Jews aren't sinners because they don't believe in Jesus. Jews are sinners because they're descendants of Adam. We're all sinners. So, you know, it's not specifically one's failing to believe in Jesus that that alone makes them a sinner. We're all sinners. So that's one way I can answer the question. But the other way I can answer the question is to say, yes, any person who rejects the person and work of Jesus Christ, as that person work is revealed to us in the Bible, any person who does that is sinning. You're, you're rejecting God. Let's remember something. There are some people maybe people from the Jewish faiths, maybe people from the Muslim faiths, maybe people from other faiths, they, they kind of say this. They say, well, listen, um, I really love God, but I'm not into Jesus. Listen, let me tell you something. The God who actually exists in the universe, the creator of all things, that God was perfectly revealed to us by Jesus Christ. If you reject Jesus, you're rejecting God. Because Jesus is the perfect representation of God. If somebody doesn't like something about Jesus, that's something they don't like about God. So, 
I could answer your question a few different ways. Um, I could say, no, Jews are sinners because they're descendants of Adam, just like everybody in humanity. Or I could say, yes, anybody who rejects Jesus Christ is rejecting God, and that's a sin. Juan asks this question, do you think the wood from the burning bush that Moses saw was also the same wood used on the crown of thorns that was used on our Savior Jesus Christ, which was acacia wood? One, I would just very simply and directly say that is a speculation because the Bible does not specifically tell us that that is the case. We can't say with confidence that that was the case. I know that some people conjecture that maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. We don't really know. So I would not confidently say that that was or is the case. Okay, just two more questions here. Golden asks, was it both Christ's death and physical blood that made atonement, or was it only his death? Okay, Golden, let me just say, I think you're making a distinction there that the Bible does not make. When the Bible talks about the blood of Christ, it's simply a Bible way of speaking of his death. If you remember back in the Old Testament, in the book of Leviticus, it says that the life is in the blood. And when a person dies, uh, so to speak, their blood is shed, e even if that's not exactly how they died. So to say the blood of Jesus is actually to say the poured out life of Jesus. It was his real death that was communicated by his real shed blood. But let me say this, Golden. There was nothing magical or mystical in the physical blood of Jesus that saved people. We, we can suppose, it's just a supposition, but I think it's a reasonable supposition. We can suppose that the Roman soldiers that nailed Jesus to the cross were, in fact, splattered with bits of his blood. It would make sense. I don't believe that those Roman soldiers were saved because a bit of the physical blood of Jesus landed on them. That's not what brings salvation. It was the real death of Jesus offered as a sacrifice, as a substitute for the sins of humanity, and that accomplishes many, many things for the people of God. Okay, last question here from Elizabeth. Did the angel move the stone so that Jesus could get out of the tomb or so that his followers could go in and see? Elizabeth, that is a great question, and I'll simply say the angel moved the stone so that the followers of Jesus and anybody else could go in the tomb and see that it was empty. We know that the resurrected body of Jesus was different than his body before the resurrection. You see, because resurrection is not just the resuscitation of a dead body. It is a new order of life and existence 
based on the old body, to be certain. There's a connection between the original body and the resurrection body. There's a connection between the two, but they're not the same thing. Therefore, we know from the Gospel of John that Jesus had the ability to appear in a room without entering through a door or a window. He just sort of materialized in a room. That shows a physical capability and property that our present bodies do not have. Okay, saying that, Jesus could have just left the tomb without going through the door opening that was covered by the stone. He did not need the stone to be rolled away to get out. No, the stone was rolled away so that people could see in and see that the tomb was empty and that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. What a great thought for us to conclude on here on this week after Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday. I pray, I hope, that you've had a glorious remembrance of the amazing resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I hope that as you continue to study the Bible and learn from Jesus, that he would fill your heart and your life with a renewed, not just knowledge, but a genuine fellowship, a genuine communion, sharing of the life between you and your Savior, Jesus Christ, as you seek after him more and more in his word. So thank you for joining me today. Thank you for those all around the world that could join us for today's time, uh, just answering questions. Uh, God willing, and if I live, I will be with you this next week, and we will get together and have another time of questions and answers. Thank you for joining us, and remember that you can look and get many of your own questions answered by looking through the content on our YouTube channel or by going to my verse-by-verse -verse commentary on the entire Bible. You can find it at EnduringWord.com. Uh, the website is there for you to see, EnduringWord.com. You can just see what is out there and is able for you to pay attention to. Uh, I hope that you can see and uh, gain something from that commentary. Again, thank you for joining us today. God bless you, and we hope to see you again soon. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.